Do I have an original podcast idea in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were thinner, I'd be happier and less anxious. It's not productive to think that way, though. I want to go to the gym. I have an exercise bike. I have a good job. Some people seem to like the podcast and the writing. I'm not sure. Is this what I should be doing? Maybe I should write a screenplay. I don't know. All I do is sit in front of a computer typing and editing. I'm not sure if people will enjoy it. But I still have to try. I want people to experience some joy in this miserable, fucked up world where mostly terrible things happen, but we have to distract ourselves from the terrible things. I should be meal prepping. I should get a book on meal prepping. I work in a library. Really, it's about time management, confidence, planning, preparing. Who cares if I'm overweight and bald? Well, I do. Probably that's why I wear hoodies and hats. Maybe it's my brain chemistry. I don't know. That's probably what's wrong. Maybe my whole family, going all the way back to my great 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 grandparents, had similar issues. All my anxiety can be reduced to a chemical imbalance. I make a weird kind of whimpering sound when I'm anxious. Anyway, this is this is a podcast, not a therapy session. I bet people will find this to be really annoying, so I better stop it now. It's a podcast conversation they want to hear, especially Sharon. Well, hopefully this isn't silly. Well, too late. Yep, it already is. Nothing's going to change that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast, the theater of the new ear. I'll explain that more later. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, and I have the creator, founder, and host of one of my favorite film festivals here, the Mental Filmness Film Festival. And she also happens to be my favorite person on the planet. Uh, welcome back, Sharon Gissy. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning the film festival, and I'm really excited to be back here again. Do you know who we're going to talk about today, Sharon? Uh, hopefully, yes, because okay. I have been <laughs> watching his movies, yeah. Oh, and Lucy, my cat, has decided she doesn't want to be a part of the podcast. She's uh, on the love seat between the two of us. Um, I think she's getting up because she's like, oh, I don't know if I'm the biggest Charlie Kaufman fan. <laughs> He's kind of, yeah, it, his sense of humor just does not work for I'm out of here. She decided to leave. That's Okay. <laughs> It's also because our voices are projecting more, and she's probably oh. like, oh, no, I can't handle that right now. Oh, my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, I am so unbelievably thrilled because we're going to talk about my favorite writer of all time, Charlie Kaufman. And uh, most people know, I think, I probably have said that on the podcast before, but um, yeah, he's my favorite writer, and Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite director, and I don't think that'll ever change. Although I've said that before. But we're doing something a little wacky here on the show, since we're going to cover three movies that he's written, not directed. Oh, boy. I know this isn't Writer's Club, but <laughs> we are also going to focus on the three movies that he's directed. Um, <clears throat> so don't think we're completely cheating here. Uh, yes. So Sharon... Also, remind people, I think you were on the Todd Haynes episode and you talked about your film festival, but uh, yeah, it's been a year. What was 2023 like for the Mental Filmness Film Festival? How did it go? And uh, just sort of give people a little synopsis, <laughs> summation of how things went and what people can look forward to this year. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for, yeah, again, mentioning that and kind of plugging in a little. But this year was, uh, I'd have to say it was the best year in terms of the live screen. It's interesting because it started in 2019. So mm. there's one live year followed by a couple of virtual years. So it's been kind of hard to build, I think, an audience and an identity for it. It's a Chicago-based film festival about mental health and i feel like this year we really tapped into the chicago community specifically um more we had a couple of really good partnerships one with a step up for mental health it's a chicago nonprofit organization they were great um with the uic counseling and wellness center um we continue to partner with the diversity committee of the chicago public library Um, so yeah, between all of those things, um, you know, we had pretty decent audience for a small fest film festival. It was a pretty de- decent audience. Um, and they were a really engaged audience. So that was great to see. Um, the virtual festival continued, um, people continue from all over the world even to enjoy watching that. Um, so that was really cool. But I think this year, the big difference was the, um, kind of uptick in interest in the live screenings. I really try to promote those more and have more of them in Chicago. So that was really cool to see. It was really cool to see um, what you accomplished at the uh, Facets Multimedia oh, yeah. screening, which I- was just remarkable to see all those young filmmakers on a Zoom call uh, and sharing their process with the audience. I was so moved by that. And... Um, it just it just it just went to show like how much interest yeah has it's grown this festival has grown and also you're um really highlighting why short films in particular are so important too in in the world of uh telling a story yeah i mean i i'm so glad you mentioned that because i that's something i forgot to mention on my little summary or recap and that was actually one of my favorite parts of this year was (laughs) our screening um we had a youth and mental health shorts block so we had some student filmmakers and i feel like we always kind of been champions of you know very kind of low budget fringe kind of filmmakers including we show a lot of student shorts so i kind of reached out also to Chicago film schools and had a couple from the University of Chicago submitted and one of the filmmakers could be there. And that was very cool, you know, seeing these uh, projects from young, sometimes, you know, teenager, 16 years old, young (laughs) (laughs) Um, filmmakers. And um, they just had like so much cool energy and creativity to them. And to hear them speak about them and facets, I have to say, was an incredible venue in terms of supporting us and um, getting everything set up just the way we wanted, and they they were quite wonderful. So I'm really glad you mentioned that because I wouldn't have wanted to forget crediting them. So thank yeah, you. <laughs> and you also showed a film that uh, it's probably in my top thirty. It didn't make my final. Uh, Top 25, which will be covered on the next episode of Director's Club very shortly, probably in one week uh, from when this is coming out, you're going to get a the big, probably nine hour long episode of me, Patrick and Bill talking about our favorite films of 2023. And uh, one of them that just missed my list is called The Year Between by Alex Heller, which oh. you showed at Facets. And 
that was great to see again on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, this year was really cool. And then I, I feel like a few things really kind of gelled for the festival. And one was that, like I said, it's kind of trying to bring in more Chicago interest and get more people into live screenings. And this kind of happened to come across. I mean, um, Jim, you really helped me with connect me with the year between. Um, and I did an interview with Alex Heller and then asked, um, you know, full spectrum features if I could show it. But then I also just kind of discovered while looking around through other Chicago mental health um, resources, uh, Margaret Byrne and her film Any Given Day. And that's mm-hmm. all also it's a documentary also based out of Chicago with, um, you know, the participants in the film who were in the Cook County Mental Health Court uh, are, are in Chicago and we had to got to have a couple of them come and talk to us in a panel as well. So I just feel like it was very, there was a lot of local, you know, connection and interest this year. So that was really cool. I'm kind of trying to bring it back to that because there are a few film festivals based around mental health that I really want this to be the one, you know, with the Chicago identity. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing great. And I can't wait to see, I mean, where, where can people find out more information if they're curious or if they even want to submit a film of their own um yeah that's a good question you know it's pretty easy pretty straightforward i mean as long as you remember the spelling it's pretty much (laughs) under mental filmness everywhere it's mentalfilmness.com and that's f-a-i-l-m-n-e-s-s but that's also on facebook facebook.com slash mentalfilmness twitter.com slash mentalfilmness filmfreeway.com slash mental filmness so no tricks there so if you can just remember the name mental filmness it's everywhere on the internet under yeah <laughs> and i love seeing what people submit i love seeing the final lineup um and of course i'll be there to support it because i find it to be a very very important uh cause i mean just in terms of getting people more invested and interested and breaking the stigma as they say surrounding mental illness and uh it's something that i know i struggle with you struggle with who knows lucy might struggle with it uh and any number of people Mm. out there that uh yeah i think we all know somebody i think at the very least if not ourselves so and all these stories are really yeah uh, original and vulnerable that's one word that will come up quite a bit when we talk about our subject today because i can't think of anybody who's more vulnerable to the point of putting himself in his own art in a way that's very direct and i think that's a nice jumping off point because to talk about charlie coffin we're going to be talking about him as a person in a way because he brings himself to each project even if it's not even if it's a book adaptation or play or um animation it's clear that every time that he creates something he's putting the complete and honest truth of the human experience the the whole the whole point of writing something is to have people experience it and if i sit here and say well this means this and this means this not only is it pointless because it either means that to people or it doesn't, it also gets in the way of people having their individual experience of, of the movie. So um, I try to put enough of in there so that, so that, so that people can inter- interact with it on an individual basis. So my sort of pontificating on it would be meaningless. There's no template for a screenplay, or there shouldn't be. There are at least as many screenplay possibilities as there are people who write them. 
we've been conned into thinking there is a pre-established form. Like any big business, the film business believes in mass production. It's cheaper and more efficient as a business model. I think what might make this form of endeavor exciting for writers is that they find themselves in an environment where they are encouraged to use their powers to explore the world, their minds, and the form itself. Think about the staggering possibilities, the marriage of light, vibration, and time. I can't even begin to tell you how much his work has meant to me, and I know that you're a huge fan. I think, I, I especially in light of what we were all going through just a couple years ago during lockdown, and deciding I'm going to put forth however hundred dollars uh, to host a screening at the Music Box Theater, my favorite theater, to show my second favorite movie, Synecdoche, New York, which you attended, which Patrick <laughs> attended. And to me, like that might be, even though, even though it wasn't a huge crowd or anything, it was a very intimate experience of a movie that I, um, I mean, a lot of people have talked about it. I can certainly say that Roger Ebert, Amy Nicholson, any, any number of film critics that love this movie as much as I do have said so much about it but i think uh, it meant a lot to me that you were there for that screening and it meant a lot to, to the to, i really appreciate the music box for doing it because i think we were going through so much mm-hmm. at that time and we kind of needed a movie that's all about life <laughs> and how awful it can be and how beautiful it could be and how you know we're 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 just like I feel like he captures the fact that human beings are a mess, <laughs> but that's okay. Like it's not; it doesn't have to be good or bad. Um, it just it, we're we're just human beings, and we're trying to be whatever we are. And who knows what that can be, and how much that can change, how much our identity can change, how much our perceptions of gender have changed. I mean, there's so many things going on throughout his work that feel prescient. When I watch it, I go. It feels like he's ahead of his time, and yet speaking to the times. I mean, it's just so much wrapped up in all of his work. But we're we're definitely going to talk about Synecdoche at length. <laughs> I imagine once we get to it, because there's when you're watching it, you can't even keep up with all of its ideas. Huh. It's kind of overwhelming. Well, and I have to thank you for showing that as well, because it's one of my favorite movies. As you know, it might be my favorite movie. I don't know. It's always hovering in my top five, at least. But like, that was the first time I'd seen on the on the big screen. And mm. there's all these, as you know, and we'll probably talk about lit, like minute details and little Easter eggs throughout the film, like, you know, all the Tom Noonan appearances and just weird things on the wall or out of the corner on the TV or whatever that I, you know, watching it, I'd always thought, what kind of person, you know, notices this when they're watching it, you know, the first time or <laughs> even the second. Yeah. But seeing it on the big screen, I was like, oh, that's just, yeah, I get it now that, you know, you can see a lot of this stuff well especially if you know it's there but you can see the little things that matter so much in that movie yeah (laughs) i value the experience of seeing on the big screen as much as i do at home because you can pause yeah you can rewind i mean there's a lot of things that i would recommend i mean i could probably put in a ton of links in the show notes to youtube videos essays things that have been said and written about this film that are kind of mind-blowing because I mean there are things that I never considered or thought about or things I hadn't noticed and yet there are people out there 
and unfortunately his name escapes me, but he did the, the genius of Synecdoche, New York videos that I just, if you really want to go deep, like we're going to go deep, but that guy went beyond deep, <laughs> you know, like scene by scene and just moment by moment would find something interesting about that particular film. And again, like a lot of my favorite movies, the first time I saw it, I couldn't process it on a first viewing. I was more like, what is this? <laughs> I don't know if I can handle whatever this was, but honestly, that feels pretty apt in that even the first time I saw Being John Malkovich, I was kind of like, I, th- I mainly just found it to be funny. Like, a, yeah. like, this was a good, weird, surreal, absurdist comedy outside of it being something deep and having something to say about identity. It was more of like my brain at the time maybe hadn't thought deeply enough to go, well, this is an existentialist film. (laughs) Let's talk about what it means and what it all means. And why I even started this podcast was basically because, well, I'm not going to be a therapist, but I can analyze movies. (laughs) And I feel like that's where Charlie Kaufman comes from is from a psychological and philosophical standpoint but he's uh, also somebody who embraces the dark absurdism of Kafka and Beckett and Pinchon and just like puts it all in a blender and just outcomes something completely unique that he's invented that I kind of go, I don't know how he did it, but he does it. And he's somebody who wanted to be a filmmaker since the age of seven. Oh, wow. Yeah, he went to film school and he also... Yeah aspired to be an actor at first but um he he sort of fell in like he was living in minneapolis for a while working odd jobs and just sort of fell into uh writing for television and sat in like writers rooms for shows like get a life the dana carvey show uh a lot of different things a lot of sitcoms that kind of flopped Mm -hmm. so he was kind of disgruntled for a while until a guy by the name of spike jones said hmm this being John Malkovich's script here, there's something going on, and I think I want to help you make it. And they did together. What are your thoughts on being John Malkovich, <laughs> Sharon? That's very cool. I actually didn't know that about his background, and I would have thought maybe writing was his first, you know. You would think so, because to. he's so good at it. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, it's kind of interesting what you said about was this the only filmmaker where you've talked about some of their films just solely based on their, their writing? I believe or? so. Okay. It's very possible that I've done this before and I just don't remember. Yeah. Because it's, um, it's kind of funny. I think even more, before you told me that, I read a review and I forget who wrote it now, but it said something like he's one of the only screenwriters distinctive enough that you consider him an auteur that's based on writing. his writing. Cause yeah. you could, no, you know, you can watch, he's one of the only writers where you can watch something and say, I think that was written by <laughs> Charlie Kaufman. And well, like, um, we're using the term Kaufman esque to yeah. describe certain things now. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I didn't really answer your question for being, <laughs> for being John Malkovich. Yeah, no, I think this is probably his film that has the most audience appeal. I think it's a lot of fun it's it's funny i think his characters are not really i i do think there's not really as much to really like break down here as some of his later oh yeah works you know in terms of (laughs) (laughs) you know philosophically or uh the characters are a little 
I feel like they're all a little mean. <laughs> I've heard that a lot about all of his movies, to be oh, honest. Really? Yeah. No, here they just didn't seem to have as much, I don't know, depth. They had their motivations, but... Um, but yeah, I think I, I remember seeing this in the theater. I think we talked about this when I was when it first came out and I was in film school and like it was just one of those movies where everyone was talking about it and it was one of those things where you went to see it and it just it really did kind of leap out of at you as being something very creative and, and distinct and inventive and funny, that whole thing with like the seven and a half floor and um the the office with the low ceilings and the <laughs> um <laughs> the Emily Dickinson puppet the, the 10 foot tall or whatever or no it's a lot taller than that was it like 50 foot tall <laughs> yeah it's that, uh yeah. but i mean just very funny very surreal and very it did i feel like mark a really kind of distinct new filmmaking voice even if it wasn't as deep i guess as some of his later movies <laughs> well at the time uh director spike jones even though we're not doing an episode on him um he was mainly known for being such an innovative music video director and when i knew that he was making his first feature i thought it was interesting that michael stipe was one of the uh, producers of this film it's like there were all ties to people that i consider to be a little eccentric, like clearly Despite Jones, Charlie Kaufman, Michael Stipe, and to some extent, <laughs> the casting of John Malkovich as John Malkovich in this movie. I don't, I mean, again, I, I always wind up talking about this in the context of why didn't this person win awards or, you know, I mean, the awards are silly. They don't, they don't matter in the long run. Like, I mean, we're, we put a lot of stock and weight into the Oscars and things like that. And I think it's just a way to sort of, you know, summarize a year in film and decide, like, I think this is probably the best thing I've seen or whatever. And we do that here too. <laughs> but I don't know. Why wasn't John Malkovich... Is it because he's playing himself <laughs> that like people didn't necessarily garner him with the kind of awards I think he deserves? Because at one point in the movie, you know, he even calls himself an overrated sack of shit. Like John Malkovich as John Malkovich. It's just kind of, and that's, I mean, you can just chalk it up to being self-deprecating and, and goofy. And like the scene with him and Charlie Sheen is hilarious. There's just a lot of things about this movie I think are hysterically funny. And just, I remember when I first saw it, I couldn't even wrap my mind around the fact that something like this was even made because it, I mean, there were definitely meta things before, <laughs> before this and probably even before something like scream, but just for John Malkovich to play John Malkovich and go inside his own portal at one point <laughs> and have him surrounded by nothing but Malkovich's everywhere. It did feel like something I, I, I don't know if I'll ever see this again in a movie. I don't know who thought of this idea. So I think that's probably why I made a mental note of who wrote this movie. Cause I said, well, why this has got to be some guy I'm going to follow because he's so inventive, but you're right. I think we, we can't talk about the work of Charlie Kaufman without bringing up the word, uh, narcissist <laughs> because, um, I think that turns a lot of people off. People were really turned off by, uh, I know you haven't seen it, but Nicholas Cage's character in Dream Scenario, um, and like Bo is Afraid is considered to be a really mean, nasty movie. Um, it's just like I think people are really turned off by that 
tendency to portray somebody who's very like so full of himself that he doesn't acknowledge other people or the outside mm-hmm. world or he's only in, in, in invested in his own needs. So that's not always pleasant to experience in a movie when they don't have an arc where they suddenly get better and certainly um, John Cusack's character in here really doesn't grow in any way and he becomes more despicable throughout the film. Uh, John Cusack as Craig in this movie uh, and certainly watching it now I'm just like kind of repulsed by some of the things he decides to do including locking up his wife yeah. in a cage uh, among other things so, at gunpoint yeah, yeah. <laughs> that got pretty that got pretty and that's the guy hard. we're supposed to sympathize with <laughs> yeah mm. I don't really know but I, I mean you bring up a good an fact I, or good point I think in that it's not only that these characters are a little narcissistic, but I think they also feel very unfulfilled. Yes. And, you know, like they want to be living a different life. So that's part of it, too. And that's part of their unhappiness. And I think that's what the movie kind of taps into, you know, and wanting to become someone else through the, through the portal, most obviously, but in other ways, too, or being a puppeteer and wanting to be able to have more control over your own life. I like that. I mean, it's true, but it's, it's just interesting. Like, this sort of lays the groundwork of things to come, you know, because we can talk about any number of themes that pop up throughout his entire career, whether as a writer or as a director. Memory, identity, obsession, uh, the artistic process, loneliness, losing control. I mean, just about everything he's written has some sort of portrayal of depression or just like the consequences of what would happen if you make certain decisions that aren't necessarily the right decisions too. Cause I think in this movie, there's just like the psychological implications and consequences of what would happen if you literally could become somebody else. Another body can only take you so far. You're still, you're, you're still you <laughs> in the end, you know, like he's still going to be a sad, miserable, lonely person, even if he's, John Malkovich and that's exactly what ends up happening to him in the end like he thinks that by being John Malkovich he's gonna you know win over um, Maxine and they end up completely miserable yeah together so I, I, I and also I don't I felt this way even early on as much as I, I loved the movie I, I, I just didn't like the the conclusion of all the elderly people going inside the portal in like a cocoon kind of <laughs> uh, r- conclusion to this whole story. It's like, what happened to all those? Uh, they just live in John Malkovich together inside of his head forever? Is that what... I couldn't... And, this is, and again, this is not a movie you have to like pinpoint logic. <laughs> you know, this is fantastical. It's, you know, not necessarily something I want to say, this is not plausible because <laughs> most of it isn't. It's just weird to me, like how I guess they sort of choose a different vessel. Yeah, I was gonna say, well, to put <laughs> to put some logic onto that logic or try to logic. I under thought the that l- their logical. next vessel was actually gonna be the baby, right? The one that Maxine and uh, yeah was I reading it the wrong way? But be, it, it was until their next vessel. But so they're I, living in John Malkovich until they can get into the baby. That is what I thought until I it came right. of the right age. But yes. I, yeah, I yes. again, I only watched that one once compared to the other ones. But um, what was the other thing? I loved what you said about how 
you're kind of trapped in yourself, even if you're able to take over this other body or something, you're still going to be your have the parts of your identity that you're unhappy with. And, you know, it might give you a momentary, uh, mm-hmm. what was it? 15 minutes or something. But like, even in the end, he was not able to solve all of his problems, John Cusack or Craig by being in the Malkovich body, because once he didn't have that, you know, he wasn't able to escape. So yeah. I love what I love that. That's a great observation. Yeah, I and think we'd be I, remiss yeah. in not me- mentioning, especially early on here, uh, his portrayal of mm, gender fluidity. I guess we could say because I don't. I don't want to speak to because I'm I'm not transgender and I don't want to speak for people who are, but I'm I'm fairly certain that some people see this as an interesting reference representation. I don't know if they consider it to be good or bad of, you know, what happens with Cameron Diaz's character, who I think actually gives the, I mean, as much as I love John Malkovich, I think she actually gets, gives the best performance in this movie because she does have an interesting arc of, um, you know, suddenly realizing that maybe she wants to be a man. I decided that I'm a transsexual. I know it's the craziest thing, Grave. No, it's just that for the first time, everything just felt right. I've got to make sure. But if the feeling is still there, I'm going to talk to Dr. Feldman about sexual reassignment surgery. This is absurd. Besides, Feldman is an allergist. And if you're going to do something, do it right. We talked about this a million times. All right? Yeah. I, I'm not good at articulating this because I'm not, I don't have that same experience. And I know a lot of people do. It's one of those cases where I'm like, maybe I should just have a, insert a clip of, uh, you know, a transgender guest uh, explaining their interpretation or their feelings about, you know, because this happens in a couple of his other movies, especially Synecdoche, where we have to sort of wrestle with what he's trying to say or do with the idea of a character being both male and female to some extent, or at least having (laughs) psychological traits or feeling like they're uh, out of place in their own body in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I'm not really sure what to make of it. Maybe if it's just another part of exploring your identity. Yeah. And that you don't, you want to be someone that you're not, or you don't feel like you're, and I guess in that point, you can even parallel it to being trapped in the wrong body or vessel or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I yeah. was thinking. I don't know if it's deeper than that, per se, but it's just kind of interesting because now it's... Se- I'm not saying like now everybody's having that same realization, but um, certainly my my experiences with with teaching young adults for a while, I, that's kind of when I sort of realized that our perceptions of gender are changing. And I think younger generations are going to sort of dictate where this goes in terms of maybe a lot of people will feel like they're both man, male and female, or they don't necessarily belong in the body that they want to be in. And this movie sort of hints at that at a very interesting time because 1999 was just a fascinating time for movies and the fact that we were heading into another decade and we thought Y2K was going to destroy everything. And there's a lot of movies about suburban dystopia 
uh, and, and you know, Fight Club and American Beauty, and this all seem like examples of like we're we're all we're all messed up, and we don't know where we are in the world, and why are we the way we are, and all these things, and. I don't know if that's ever completely gone away, <laughs> uh, but it just seemed more prevalent. Like the the types of movies being made around this time were very challenging and interesting and exciting. No, I agree with you. I feel like there were definitely. It seemed like there was a lot of risky stuff coming out, at least in the big on the big screen, you know, and oh, yeah. that people were a- asking these really deep questions. And I think it was partially because around that time. I felt like a like a tipping point or something. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I I was wondering. Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm gonna be a screenwriter, like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Susan, we would really like to option this. You wanna make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. John LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? It's self-indulgent, it's narcissistic, it's solipsistic, it's pathetic. <laughs> Those are his words, not mine. Uh, anyway, it's an unadaptable book that was brilliantly adapted in a way that I still am astonished by because the first time I saw it, my reaction was interesting. I hated the last 20 minutes of this movie. I thought it was stupid. <laughs> like, I actively went... Why the hell did he choose to end it like this? It didn't make my top 10 that year. <laughs> and I was like, he, he, so basically he listened to Robert McKee. He basically like decided, well, I got to throw in explosions and drugs and, you know, a chase sequence and all this shit. And he didn't listen to his own instincts. And then I thought about it more and I looked at the co-screenwriter, Donald Kaufman. And then I suddenly <laughs> got it. Donald Kaufman wrote the last 20 minutes of the movie. I got it. Finally, after like three viewings, I'm like, oh, this is actually a masterpiece. I love it. And I love Nicolas Cage so much. And John LaRoche, oh, what a character, to say the least. <laughs> so, what? yeah, how do you feel about adaptation, Sharon? I'm rambling. I'm excited because this is the first like Charlie Kaufman movie where I suddenly absolutely fell in love and decided he's my favorite writer. Um, you know, I think it's actually great because he did, and even though he calls the decision narcissistic and solipsistic, and I think it's really kind of honest, and I think it's a lot more relatable, and, you know, his character, even his twin brother, has more depth than, you know, anyone in being John Malkovich, and I 
I actually think it was a brave choice for him to, you know, kind of write about the movie about his own neurosis and writer's block and like, you know, kind of self-loathing. Even though it's very uncomfortable to watch, he just makes this Nicolas Cage character. Yeah, it's like so sweaty and nervous (laughs) and anxious and self-loathing. It's just at times I almost cringe. It just seems there's something very honest about it. And And I feel like he... From this point, I feel like he continued to kind of write characters based on himself. <laughs> more, more or less. Like. So it was a good kind of beginning of that. Um, I agree with you. The It's hard to really know what to make of the fact that he kind of did everything that he said he wasn't going to do in the beginning. Um. <laughs> yeah. My reaction the first time was just like, oh, dude, why? Why'd you do that? But I feel feel like he yeah he kind of realized that there's something about that you know it's it's kind of okay to put some drama into the story and it was okay to get outside of his own head a little bit you know and put some things that maybe even he wanted to put in there like you know maybe it'd be more interesting with a love story I don't know um and I felt like that was almost in a way his overcoming, you know, and even his whatever it was, alter ego brother, his way of overcoming his own writer's block and neuroses, you know. Well, so, Donald Coffin yeah. could be like his inner voice. Yeah. Of yeah. like, <laughs> I could go this way. <laughs> and he's taught having a conversation with himself during the writing process. And Donald Kaufman is like the the mainstream Hollywood typical version of a story and he doesn't want to go that route he's fighting with his own internal voice and that internal voice is manifested as his twin brother in this movie donald kaufman because he like says some ridiculous things in this movie like his idea for um the serial killer movie (laughs) mom (laughs) called it mom called it psychologically taught (laughs) like all that i'm sure he's woken up in the middle of the night or something in a sweat and just kind of going Maybe I should write a movie like Seven. <laughs> you know, maybe that would help. Maybe that would help my career. Um, so he does listen to Robert McKee in a way. Yes, you have to wow them in the end. For me, it, at the first time, I was like, "You didn't wow me. You disappointed me by deciding to do that." But then I sort of realized, "Oh, actually, it's a brilliant con- conceit and compromise in a way um, to to just like it's like him coming to terms with the fact that this." version of storytelling exists and it exists for a reason (laughs) because people like that stuff and it's okay to like that stuff um i was just like what what on earth would susan orlean somebody who was given an assignment to adapt her material and out came this to where you know the screenwriter is essentially putting himself in this material um, that seems, again, very selfish to do, but I, I think she was in shock when she first read this <laughs> adaptation of adaptation. Um, <laughs> she was like, hmm, this is going to ruin my career if people perceive me to be this way. Like, that's actually what she thought at first. Um, but then she came to terms and suddenly went, wait a minute. This is a movie. <laughs> this isn't me. This is somebody's interpretation of my material. And even if it's not about 
flowers in like the whole movie isn't about that. It's about disappointment. It's about not finding that orchid in the end. It's still there's it's that's still there. That's still within like every character mm-hmm. almost experiences disappointment and longing and disconnection and obsession. All those things that are actually in her book are in this movie just in very metaphysical, weird, twisted ways that uh, Charlie Kaufman, of course, is able to pull off. Um, and this is, a, this is a script that I think is kind of ingenious in that it just sort of wraps around itself. <laughs> like the snake, the snake eating <laughs> Yeah. That's no. what I thought when I was watching. Like, this is kind of like that in screenplay form. Which kind of makes it amazing. Yeah, I mean, I I think he kind of gets to have it both ways in a way. Yeah. Because he, he had the ending uh, of her being disappointed by the ghost orchid. Like, oh, it's just a flower. <laughs> but then he had the ending, you know, that would have been the one written by his twin brother. Or the, uh, like you said, everything he said he was doing, the, the orchid becomes drugs. And there's a face. And yes. they fall in love. Like, I even remembered when it, she was taken as a drug, he said to, you know, in the very be- beginning to Tilda Swin, I don't want it to become a drug. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. Like, <laughs> there doesn't need to be sex. And of course, we see Meryl Streep on a, like a porn site at one point. Um, but I mean, yeah, and hopefully the author would realize that it's kind of, you know, a, a parody of whatever Hollywood storytelling and write- writing and writer's block and writer's conferences and that it's not... I don't think it's meant at all to present what really ha- happened. I mean, if anything, it would be the parts where it's actually using her writing, you know, based on uh, what she said in the article. But yeah, I think you, but it's kind of, you know, he kind of gets to have it both ways. He gets to have that movie that would have been written, written in that more restrained way. And then the fun part and, um, well, not that <laughs> it's not fun, <laughs> but it's two different parts. The more mass feel part, I guess you could say. But I think, yeah, you kind of nailed it. The one, um, to me, the line, and I, I didn't write it down exactly, that kind of summarizes this movie is when she said everything in life is like a ghost orchid, or there's many things in life like it, you know. Fantastic, fleeting, and a little outreach. I think that's mm, what it was. Yeah, yeah. that's really beautiful. And that's beautiful. like one of his pet themes, too. I feel like that's just kind of runs through all his movies is idealism and when you get what you want it's not really what you expect you yeah. know and it's not fulfilling in the it's way. putting things on a pedestal exactly. again exactly yeah. yeah and so just like realizing here. the reality of oh yeah this isn't going to change my life right it's just a flower i think that's what she said <laughs> <After> <laughs> it's just a flower yeah but the flower represents something i really say, like it also captures longing in a way too because I, I mean, I'm, I think Charlie Kaufman as a person has been happily married for quite some time, but just the portrayal of the lonely writer in a room, like trying to like the inner monologue that starts this movie and like him talking or like what, what, what you're hearing, what he's thinking as he's trying to write is so relatable. Like if you're really struggling to write something, you're like, hmm, maybe if I drink some coffee, that'll help me. <laughs> and then if, if I write something, then I'll treat myself for writing like i i've had those conversations in my own head which is kind of eerie when that happens in a movie where it's like oh yeah i've done that or i've felt that or i've experienced that um yeah there's just a lot of insight to the writing process that feels really relatable yeah (laughs) throughout this movie i think the jump from this i mean this kind of um 
was really inventive in a lot of the ways being John Malkovich was, but I think it was really relatable, a lot more relatable because, you know, you never, it's funny because the whole movie is about being inside someone's head, right? But I feel like more you don't less. really get inside their heads as much as you do in his head and adaptation in terms of his, you know, internal thoughts. And um, I think that really kind of works in its favor to add a lot more kind of empathy and well, uh, yeah, relatability, I th- yeah, I think it's a matter too of relatability with uh, the fact that we we actually can't find a magic portal that would take us into a celebrity's head, but we can relate to sitting in front of a computer trying to write something. So it, it sort of makes. I mean, we've never written a screenplay or you know had to adapt somebody's book because it was a, an assignment necessarily. But I just think I understand his neuroses. I understand like his tendency to doubt himself a lot but also like just the um you know the, the loneliness of being a writer too is really well captured here and um like and and the, that where he's like comparing all these flowers to something and then he's comparing all the women to something oh that whole sequence is kind of beautiful <laughs> i thought about that too no i'm glad you mentioned that because that also reminded me a lot of that that kind of theme it's like you know you, you could imagine a life with each one of those mm-hmm. you know people and that would be kind of like yeah like a different kind of flower or a different kind of ideals that you would have that would turn out differently and i think we can all relate to that even if we're you know, happy in a, in a relationship with somebody. It's very easy to like have a brief fleeting moment of, Oh, what if I was with that person or what was that person like? And then of course, once we get to know them, we're like disappointed, (laughs) which comes up quite a bit. And especially in the next movie we're going to talk about, which to me at the time when I saw eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, I, uh, I kind of broke down a bit. I'm not a concept, Joel. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. I'm not perfect. I can't see anything that I don't like about you. But you right will. Now I can't. But you will. You know, you will think of things. And I'll get bored with you and feel trapped because that's what happens with me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was uh, very overwhelmed. I saw this with my two best friends at the time uh, out in Northwest Indiana. Uh, It was interesting to see it with my friend Denny because we loved manic, wacky, crazy Jim Carrey. (laughs) And, you know, he often when we made movies, he sort of exhibited the same sort of flailing arms wackiness that he did with Dumb and Dumber and his early career. And then we watched this movie together at a very vulnerable time, especially for me, because I had broken up with my fiance fairly recently within the last six to eight months. So seeing a movie like this, obviously I was prone to be a mess watching a movie about breaking up and what relationships how messy relationships can be. But um, this is uh, not directed by Spike Jones. It's directed by Michelle Gondry. And we have talked about Michelle Gondry on this podcast way long ago, maybe even a decade ago at this point, which is scary. But um, I talked about 
how much that movie meant to me then. It still means a lot to me now, but I also don't feel as strongly connected to the mopey Jim Carrey character, uh, Joel, as I first did when I was in my mid-20s. Now, most of these movies now, your Garden State, your High Fidelities, with like your Manic Pixie Dream Girl character, kind of irk me a little bit more because I don't view relationships in that extent of, I'm depressed, this girl will save me. I don't think of it (laughs) that way. Uh, and the, a lot of these movies sort of portray it that way, but this one isn't necessarily that either. It, it shows a lot of the messiness of being in a relationship. It shows the possibilities of it not working out, in my opinion, at the very end. But at the same time, what it all comes down to is that this is a screenplay I wish I had written because it tackles everything I'm interested in. The brain, memory, relationships, uh, the way we interact with one another the things we say, all all these things. Uh, this is what got me interested in neuroscience, is this movie. I, I basically mm-hmm. had this epiphany of wanting to study the brain and go into psychology because I'd seen this movie. So it me- that's why it means a lot to me, is that I it, it kind of changed the trajectory briefly mm-hmm. for my life. Um, it's not something I stuck to, obviously, but I still love psychology. And it also has my all-time favorite music score ever by John Bryan. So (laughs) even if I have like reservations about fully embracing every little thing or, you know, now I think of Joel as just kind of somebody I I can't imagine being in a relationship with necessarily because he's so (laughs) detached and I don't know what Kate Winslet sees in this guy, uh, Clementine. I don't see what Clementine sees in Joel. Um but I love everything about it anyway, even if I have these reservations. And I know like the original story had a little bit more fleshed out with um, uh, Kirsten Dunst's character. Mm. Like it started out with her thinking back to what happened at Lacuna with, um, oh yeah. Well, really quickly before I hear your thoughts on it, we got to give a brief moment of recognition and silence for the great Tom Wilkinson mm. As um, Dr. Marizak, 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 I think that's how you say his name. Yeah. Um, Incredible in this, incredible in just about everything. He's just one of those welcome character actors that anytime he showed up, I was very happy to see him. So kind of uh, wild timing since we just lost him recently. But um, there's a lot going on too in this movie that I think is very profound, very special. And it's incredibly well edited when Mm. you're jumping around from Joel's internal experience, his memories, and what's going on in reality. Uh, But what are your thoughts, partner, on Eternal (laughs) Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, a movie about being in a relationship? Yeah, no, I I love what you said, and I think just the concept of this movie is so great that um, if it... uh, You know, even if it's a little messy, it's just something that gives you so much to think about in terms of relationships. And I've heard, I feel like I've heard a couple of different origin stories for this idea, but one was based on a psychological paper about, uh, you know, erasing memories. But, um, yeah, well, I mean, the initial yeah. idea was Charlie Kaufman talking with a friend. What if somebody gave you this, the card that Joel gets at one point from, Oh, right. From his yeah. friends. Yeah. 
Um, but, you, you know, to say something that wasn't really something that you already said, I agree with a lot of things you said about the relationship. Um, and, you know, I think one of the points of the movie is kind of like that it's worth exploring those relationships anyway, even if even if, you know, they might not work out, even if, you know, they're not ideal. And I it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Mary and the Kirsten Dunst character, because what was I what I was thinking too is that's really interesting that she's the one who decides to give everyone back their tapes and that it's a terrible procedure and everything after they were trying to erase her memory about the affair with the doctor because here's something to me out of everything that's something that would never work out or turn into something in reality would be her affair with this like you know, married doctor with much kids. older doctor, <laughs> much older. You know, no matter what, it just wouldn't be something that. And it seemed like it had a history of happening. It wouldn't be something that would ever end well. But she still didn't want to erase it. And I, to me, that was really interesting. Like she just wanted to have it anyway as a part of her life. You know, and I think that kind of encapsulates one of the big themes of the movie. That you know. Yeah, I agree. You need that life experience. You need that. You need to go through it. And also, maybe you're going to repeat it. Keep repeating it mm. if you don't know that it happened. That's like what I think. Did. That's what I think the loop at the end yeah. indicates yeah. is that they're going to keep repeating it. Yep. Um, but then again, like they're not going to re- keep repeating the procedure necessarily. It's just that they're going to possibly tr- keep trying and it's just not going to happen because i don't think they're going to be a, I don't, do you think that they're a good couple <laughs> like that's the one thing i watched about watch thinking about it this time was like <clears throat> are they a good match really i mean they have moments for sure i just don't know they seem like vastly different people to where you know that conversation about them having a baby it's like they seem like they're in completely different wavelengths where I'm watching and I go, I don't know if they this would be a healthy relationship for the two of them, that maybe they should actually just move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does, it seems like they're just so, like, if you were checking OkCupid boxes or something, like, how impulsive are you? How much do you like to drink? <laughs> how much do you like to go out? You know, they are, like, completely... Introvert and extrovert. Different, yeah. Um and I mean, most of what you see of their relationship doesn't seem like they're super happy together. So it's interesting. But there's obviously something that they're just kind of like drawn to about each other. And I think, like I said, like, I think that's kind of like one of the points I keep going back to is even if it's not something that's going to really work out for you. It's you kind of need those life experiences, especially in relationships, you know, and you grow yeah. from that. And um, and I, I think it's something I told you before, like when they it's kind of like they know I, I feel like in the end when they're listening to the tapes and they're saying, oh, I'm really I get really controlling and I get really, you know, dependent or whatever, needy to each other. They kind of know, I feel like, that it probably doesn't have a high chance of working out, but they just, and then they just say, okay, you know, like, we're going to do it anyway. And That's kind of beautiful. Yeah. It's, uh, there's something really beautiful about it. It's almost like saying it's worth 
And I mean, even if you like want to, like he does, you know, these really big philosophical themes, think it in terms of a lot of life experiences, you know, are going to be that way. It's this is going to be worth having. It's going to be worth living through this because it's going to be hard. And a lot of it is anyway, you know, most relationships are hard, (laughs) whether with your parents or yourself. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, there's challenges that come with it, you know, and, and even like, gosh, work relationships are challenging. So I don't know. Once once you start getting other people into the equation, you gotta you gotta you gotta tread lightly. You gotta be careful. You gotta be, but you also should be open and willing because we're social creatures. I mean, some people are fine living a life of solitude and completely being alone, but in the end, you, you, you it's better for you in the long run to form relationships, even if they're complicated ones or ones where you feel tension or ones where you feel a sense of. You know, I think that's what I worry about sometimes in my own life is just, oh, I feel a lot of uh, anxiety around this one person or this other person. But come on, you can't you can't have like amazing connections with every single person where everything feels right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be the people in the world that you just don't click with. And I don't think you should just necessarily like because that's the one thing like psychologists and therapists will tell you is like, well try your best not to be around those people that make you feel negative. And I agree with that to some extent, but then I also think it's kind of normal. <laughs> I think you know, because you, negative energy just comes from getting out into the world. Yeah. From getting on the train, from going to work. Like you're going to experience some negative relationships in your life. Why not let your brain adapt to it like anything else? You know, I think I think it's important to try. And I think this movie is basically saying take the good with the bad or take the bad with the good, <laughs> however you want to put it. Um, and so I feel a sense of uh, like it's, it's such a bittersweet ending because it feels like they are going to give it a go, but it's it's probably not going to work out. Yeah, I get that, too. Oh. And I, I almost feel like like I don't want to say it's a loop, but I feel like it's something that's going to keep happening if they don't, or, or that they to don't any relationship erase. they have, I think it's going to keep happening. For some reason, they're drawn to each other, and I, I think that they just need to experience whatever this is going to be, this relationship. And, you know, maybe there's one universe where it does work out, but <laughs> no matter what, I think it's just an ex- I have a feeling... It's just an experience that they need to have and live through to know what it's like, you know. What do you think about yeah. the Elijah Wood subplot? Because I, I didn't like that. Yeah, that's the <laughs> one. Good. That's the one thing I'm like, you probably didn't need this, really. You just kind of, he's just kind of there. I mean, I like Elijah Wood and I love Mark Ruffalo. I mean, I love him in everything, but uh, it's just kind of, it's kind of a weird, like, decision to suddenly have him be this little stalker guy basically like trying to groom and seduce (laughs) Clementine in that way. It's just kind of an odd choice to throw that in there because I don't know if it was necessary. I don't dislike it to the point of it ruining the experience of watching the movie, but it's just kind of an odd decision to, I guess it's like the darkness of Charlie Kaufman seeping in where he'd think like, well, if somebody was able to get a hold of all of the, Joel's stuff and figure out who you know basically manipulate himself into somebody's life they could do that and I think some people try to do that 
nowadays <laughs> using social media. Like I try to, you know, somebody would might try to find out everything they possibly can about a person and then like pretend that they know, like, you know, I know it's a, it's a weird idea that I don't, I, I don't, it doesn't belong in this movie really. Yeah. I didn't, I was trying to think, I, I didn't really care for that and trying to think if it was necessary. I know he's the one who kind of goes down and tries to warn her too. I, toward the end that that's going to happen, I think. But yeah, um, I, was, I still don't think it was really necessary. But I mean, you did just kind of bring up one other thing I thought I was thinking about the movie, which is, you know, he was trying to take everything that was good about the relationship and use it to seduce her. And yeah, I feel like when Joel was having the procedure, it was like every once in a while something would come up and he'd be like, no, like, just let me keep this one. I just want to keep this one. Keep and, you the know, good again, with the it's, bad. It's not like that all or nothing thing. Yeah, you don't get to pick or choose if you're doing this. It's like, and that's how we learn and grow. I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, but that's how we like I, I learn like and grow from our life is, you know, <laughs> our, yeah, our, our bad and our good memories. So I feel like you would be kind of emotionally stunted in a lot of ways if you would be able to do that. Yeah, and what? How do you feel about Kate Winslet's character as Clementine? Because at first I was thinking it's kind of a reductive manic pixie dream girl type performance, and like uh, th- the initial thinking was like, let's just have her play the manic Jim Carrey role, and Jim Carrey play the you know sad, sullen, depressed role. <laughs> like yeah. they're sort of switching roles and expectations of what we think of them as performers. Uh, and then I suddenly realized, oh, mo- the majority of what we're seeing is through Joel's perspective of Clementine. Mm, and so maybe yeah. he thinks of her in that way. And it's less about the portrayal or the writing of this character necessarily. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, I love Kate Winslet. So yeah, <laughs> I love her in this movie very much. Uh, but what, what, what are your thoughts about her as a character? Um, yeah, I mean, I... It's interesting because they reference this other girlfriend that he had, Naomi, I think it was, that was supposedly more... There are deleted scenes, if you're curious. There are deleted (laughs) scenes on YouTube if you want to know more about her. Um, And obviously he was kind of bored. I mean, even though he seems kind of boring himself, it's like, I I feel like he wanted or need... Maybe that's wasn't healthy for him, you know. He kind of pinned his ideals on some kind of woman that was going to bring him out of his shell, you know. And she even said that, like, I can't, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to save you or, you know, be your your concept or whatever, I think. But I, I really, I think, yeah, especially considering that's what he was looking for was someone who was really, you know um impulsive that impulsive and <laughs> vivacious and everything to be able Joel to make is very him, controlled right to be able to make him feel more you know alive or like he could come like he i think he felt and maybe he did needed someone to be that much so to kind of pull him out of his shell but like even for that i didn't feel like she went overboard or anything honestly i i thought she was you know um outgoing um, but not really over the top. I, and I flawed. Good she's and flawed. she's an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. clear. And I, she, mean, I, I think she would even admit that. I think the first time you saw on the train, she was like drinking from a flask and yeah. having cocaine or something. Cocaine? I missed that. Was it? Or she was sniffing something. Maybe it wasn't. I think it was just nasal spray. At oh, least okay. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I, th- I, I just assumed so. it was a drug. I'm probably wrong. Gosh, that whole train <laughs> meeting is just... Uh, it's so weird because, yeah, it, it seems so awkward and strange, but it's also because... 
they both had the procedure at that point, which yeah. makes it understandable why they're both like having a disconnect. Like she even mentions Huckleberry Hound, Clementine, Oh My Darling, all that. Right. And he goes, and I've he never heard remember. of that. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> And that's because it's been erased. <laughs> it's just so well written and so well edited. And Michelle Gondry is so playful with certain things. Like I think about how at one point we go from the Barnes and Noble bookstore back into um, uh, Joel's friend's apartment or house. And just as a side note, I, I don't know why I find... Uh, like just, I wish there was more <laughs> deleted scenes too of like David Cross and Jane Adams because I love them. I I, I almost <laughs> wish they were a couple um, because they're so good in this movie and they're so every time they're appearing in things, I'm happy and I just love David Cross's. I'm I'm building a birdhouse while he's smoking a joint. <laughs> it's so good, uh, but yeah, it's just everything about it is wonderful. But like I was saying the way Michelle Gondry has these uh, playful touches that you would see early on in his own music video work where it's all in camera and he does like set breakdowns mm -hmm. and buildings disappearing. Uh, just a lot mm -hmm. of weird, interesting touches throughout. And he was not always easy to work with mm -hmm. because he would have these insane ideas of how to do a scene without any effects. And it would be exhausting for someone like Jim Carrey because he basically have to be two Jim Carreys in one scene without any cuts. Yeah. 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 I think I heard that or read that somewhere too. I will say, you know, here's an interesting thing. I thought Kate Winslet's character is a little more believable than his actually. Like I felt like his was a little too <laughs> down Restrained, or reserved. Yeah. Like he had nothing, like he had nothing, you know, really. Well, to she even says him, that but, about yeah. him. Like, what do you write in that journal? You know, and it's like it's all it's blank. There's nothing like, but that's what what like could you see yourself being attracted to a guy like Joel? Probably not. I mean, yeah. oh, that's just that's just me. Maybe again, it's like projection to some degree too. But also like, ugh, I don't. I hope I wasn't that bad. <laughs> like I know I'm. I know I have depression, and I know I can be a little reserved. And even when we first met. You, you you thought I was like just kind of not not all there or something like I wasn't yeah. very uh, present yeah 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 and I think that's what happens when you're depressed but uh yeah we don't know how much about like Joel's backstory outside of like you know we see his subconscious we see his repressed memories we see that incredible sequence of him as a kid under the table yeah. uh you know having an interesting sort of uh, attachment to his mother. Um, so it's it's just like there's there's a lot going on that we sort of have to figure out and project ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe there's a reason behind that because he's the, um, you know, maybe he did kind of define himself too much by his relationship or yeah. um, was looking for that as his salvation or identity. So that, that could be the reason for that they can eat the, yeah i think even at one point they like comment on his apartment it's like it's kind of dull here <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like the and i think he's sort of thought of in that way and i don't know a lot of people would say that charlie kaufman's protagonists are depressed and kind of cut off and not fully present or lacking 
a certain identity that they're in search of. Uh, and I think that's true. I mean, and yeah, and I don't know. Kate Winslet's character here, I could see the appeal of somebody <laughs> like that because they're magnetized themselves to you in a way and in a good way for the most part. Uh, and they have had a lot of great memories. They've had a lot of good moments together. So it makes sense why they're still drawn to each other in the end. And I think it's uh, kind of, I think also the score towards the end, like the whole moment of the house falling apart. I walked out the door. There's no memory left. Come back and make up a goodbye at least. Let's pretend we had one. I love you. Maybe in Ugh. Like I start getting really emotional when he's sort of realizing he should have stayed. Like I wish I had stayed. And she's like talking to him about, oh, well, what yeah. if you stayed this time? Um, that still really moves me and the music playing and then her saying, meet me in Montauk. Um, which still confuses me because... <laughs> I don't like that's we're inside Joel's memory and Joel's head at that point. So how would she know to meet him in Montauk? Because that's not, I mean, I guess they were just drawn there for reasons. I mean, I don't know that whole, that whole moment of like them basically reuniting in the winter in Montauk together is interesting to me because we're just seeing it from Joel's perspective. But why did Clementine herself decide to go back to Montauk? You know, I could have sworn, but I'm sure this would have been all edited, that I read somewhere that there was a version where Clementine erased him a few times, too. Mm. But I'm sure that Charlie Kaufman fixed all that before this version of the film. But maybe there was some... Yeah, that's why... I don't know if that's kind of like a hint that maybe she had, you know, that too, or... I I don't know. It could be. I can't really... Yeah. I can't really tell. Or maybe it's just like that idea that yeah they're kind of no matter what they're kind of like drawn to experience this together together you know in some way or another yeah some cosmic force has brought (laughs) them together or it's just the genius of charlie kaufman (laughs) which is yeah this this i mean seeing this movie and certainly even going back to it it's hard not to get a little emotional because it how can somebody watch this movie and not think about their own relationships or their the, the own the experiences that they've had or when they've broken up with somebody oh i wish i could not think about them to where like wouldn't it be great if this procedure existed but this also shows you why it's good thing that this procedure isn't available <laughs> cuz it is a as he as he says at one point well it is actually a brain form, damage. form for brain damage <laughs> yeah Ooh, and that whole that whole sequence too, once he starts realizing he's in his own head, that like montage or that, that entire sequence of him like going, Oh, I'm inside my own head now. <laughs> I don't know why, but that like that actually gives me anxiety. Like when I see it. It just makes me think of like I have too much I have too much awareness of what's going on right now. And I think he's experiencing that. So I feel that too in a, in some sort of weird way where it was like I think I'm I think I'm thinking too much. Which is what this whole show is really about thinking too much and then <laughs> saying it out loud. Overanalyzing. <laughs> yeah, saying it out loud into a microphone. 
uh, in hopes that people are enjoying it, and I'm sure they are, because uh, you're here. Sharon, you're here, and I'm so glad you are, every day. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyway, can we talk about my second favorite movie of all time? (laughs) Sure. You ever heard of it? It's called Synecdoche, (laughs) New York. I've never talked about it ever. No, of course I'm joking. <laughs> I've talked about it probably too much. But on the show, I mean, have you done? That's had, what I, that's what I thought you meant. Yeah. I don't think I've done a full blown episode on it because if I had, you would be involved. <laughs> that was um, the whole uh, impetus for this one, right? Because yeah. yeah, I wanted to talk to you about it, <laughs> and I promise, and when we do this again next year, you're choosing. I'm not going to say anything. You're choosing whoever you want to talk <laughs> about. <laughs> Death comes faster than you think. The idea is to do a massive theater piece. What was this used for? Plays. Like theater plays? I disappointed you somehow. Everyone is disappointing. The more you know someone. I don't know what I'm doing. Knowing that you don't know is the most essential step to knowing, you know? I want you to beg me on your knees for a kiss. We need to investigate the essence of each being. You're weirdly close to what I've visualized for this character. Glad to be weirdly close. You smell weird. What do I smell like? It's like you're menstruating. I don't know. I don't menstruate, so I don't know. I can smell like I'm menstruating. You tell me. I've been following you for 20 years, and I've learned everything about you. So hire me, and you'll see who you truly are. I'm just a little person. One. What like talk about your first experience? Talk about your personal history of it. Just, just go off, man. <laughs> Pretend you're Charlie Kaufman writing a script right now. Oh wow, that's a lot. Um, well, the whole movie is a lot. But I'll just go <laughs> ahead and start by the story I've told you many times before, but not everyone else is. I the first time I watched this movie, it was just on DVD from Netflix, I believe. Uh, I was just so I didn't finish it because I thought it was too depressing and I just didn't get this movie at all the first time because I think I was just watching you know I was watching it kind of like it was a regular movie which it's not uh, like, no. a, like a drama and I was just so depressed and um, you know I, I turned it off and um, my uh, ex-husband came home and uh you know we both loved uh charlie kaufman and we're excited about it and he's like oh what did you think of his like i had to turn off his you know he gets divorced his father dies his mother dies you know all this it's so depressed depressing he's sick he keeps getting more sick (laughs) it's like such an uplifting experience and he started watching it and i was in the other room and i could just hear him laughing and i was like and laughing and i came in i was like how can you laugh at this movie and he's you know he's like this movie's funny you know it's like a dark a dark comedy and in particular one thing i could not even believe was uh that he had um lost his own father and he was laughing at the part that the um uh you know we don't know who calls i'm guessing it's the hospital (laughs) or the called it from and what i love you know which is really indicative of 
everything in this movie really is he seems to be on the phone for like less than a minute <laughs> he's like yeah they told me this and like it was the longest saddest deathbed speech anyone ever gave <laughs> he had it was a long drawn out suffering death and then they were burying him in his coffin had to be filled with cotton balls because there was so little left of him <laughs> And I did not realize that was supposed to be funny because who says that, you know, but it's always like you died. um, They died peacefully in their sleep, you know, (laughs) (laughs) they wished everyone well and (laughs) said they loved everyone. So it's, you know, but it's very darkly humorous, you know. Um, But yeah, I, I just there was so much I didn't get about this movie the first time, the dark humor like that. And I mean, I didn't notice the little details tales um you know like the way time passes in the beginning like the date is fast forwarding on the newspaper and on the milk carton it like jumps a month ahead and just all those little weird actually all throughout the beginning and i think it's christmas and new year's and um like it it just moves really fast and all throughout the movie he kind of plays around with time and then there's kind of deeper, you know, I don't know how deep you want me to get, but <laughs> it's like... Uh, uh, we can't talk about that on the podcast, <laughs> but I I think you can go as deep as you want on this movie because, uh, yeah, it's... I don't throw... I, I guess I probably have spoken in hyperbole many times on this show, but, um, you know, it took, it took a while. It took about three viewings, but it, this is when I said, I think... Charlie Kaufman is a genius, mm-hmm. a true genius in every way. Like, I just couldn't believe what I was experiencing when I saw this movie. I mean, uh, what were your first impressions of it? Because I'm guessing that you probably got it more than I did. Not the first time. The first yeah. time I, <laughs> Colin and I saw this together and I, I, we both walked out and I said, I'm exhausted. Yeah. And, and I told him, but not in a bad way. I can't wait to see this again. Um, I don't know if I love it yet. And that's happened to me with some of my favorite movies where it's like, my brain isn't ready. (laughs) Yeah. It's a movie. I don't think, I don't think there's any way that someone could process it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And in particular, because there's things in the beginning that the beginning is the The (laughs) ending is built into the beginning (laughs) that show up later. So it's kind of like foreshadowing, mm-hmm. like the Tom Noonan character keeps showing up earlier in the movie, and then he only becomes a major character later in the movie, um, you know, and just stuff like that, that, um, I mean, how, I, that would be impossible to know the first time you watched it, like what that meant, you know, uh, so it's definitely not something I don't think you could get, I would even argue from several <laughs> <laughs> there's something new you know there's new details every time it's like so nuanced and there's an apocalypse in the end and it takes <laughs> place in of the weird future details now. yeah there's there's it's it's everything like i mean i know there was a movie that came out recently called everything everywhere all at once but that's what this movie could also be called because it feels like everything uh, to me like every feeling every human experience every fear every sort of uh humorous response to something dark yeah which you you relate to you have that sense of humor (laughs) but 
at the same time, it's really just kind of about this one man's life, Caden Cotard. And, you know, the Cotard delusion is like a belief that you're dying, right? You're always dying or dying you're from the inside or something. Yeah. There's all kinds of wordplay like that in this movie, too. Which Simulacrum. seems to always love. <laughs> Simulacrum. Yeah. yeah. I don't like, even know yeah. what that means. <laughs> There's a lot throughout, you know, again, someday someone, I don't, I don't think it would be me because I don't know if I could handle writing a book, but there will be a book written about this movie someday, uh, hopefully within our lifetimes of all the things, the references, the ideas, <laughs> the Jungian psychology, the, you know, what the burning house means. Oh, um, right. I mean here's the thing yeah it, it really is just kind of about one well it's about a lot more than that <laughs> i mean it's what one of the things it's strongly about is one man's life and you know that's one thing you can go and how do you online, contain one man's life yeah and or how much one man's life contains and you could go online and read all kinds of really interesting um you know analyses of it there's just so many details in it but I will just mention a couple that I think are really like interesting is the movie begins, um, you know, some people have theorized it's purgatory or a suicide dream or something. And it begins with the clock changing from 744 to 745 um, when he wakes up in the morning and they're talking about fall and death and everything. And in the end, he's being counted down to 745. You know, now you're 743, now you're 744, right before he dies. I hope that's... And the director's voice yeah. in, the ear, in his ear says die. It's and the last word you hear. It says die right after he passed 744, and there's a clock. <laughs> Again, what time? Written I watched this like 10 chalk. times before I noticed this. There's a clock in shock <laughs> on the wall that says 745. So I feel like it cannot be a coincidence. That means something. And then there's another part where, I mean, there's like wordplay and mishearings all throughout the movie, which I feel like are just all throughout something most of he movies. does. Yeah, and like all of his movies. Constant, yeah, like not mishearings and. But one thing, when he's at his psychiatrist and he gets, he first gets this MacArthur uh, genius grant to write a play. Um, you know, he's saying like how, you know, he wants to do it before he dies, you know, that just keeps coming up again and again. And he said, how young are people when they start to write? And his psychiatrist said, you know, there's this little Winky who wrote this book at the age of four and <laughs> gives him the book, um, which I guess is about like an anti-Semite <laughs> Nazi or something written by a four-year-old. And um, and then she says, uh, oh, well, he died when he was five. And then he says, um, Caden says... Why would somebody... Um, why? Well, I'm trying to remember the exact line. Or no, yes, he says, why would somebody kill himself? I think that's what it is. And she says, I don't know, why did you? And and he says, what? And she says, I don't know, why would you? And that is another thing uh, of the four turning into five. There's a few of them in the in the movie, but I feel like there's something significant about that. But that's the only, yeah. like, deep... Like I said, you could go really crazy, <laughs> like... He even perceives Deep his daughter these, as being a four-year-old yeah. when she's actually turning 11. That, too. And he continues to think of Olive as four years old throughout the movie, you know, yeah. as she ages and becomes an adult. 
there's a few there's a few things like that so i feel like there's kind of some validity to the interpretation that there's something uh, there's some kind of resistance of the number four turning into five and its connection with with death or something so yeah and hazel at one point has three sons but she describes them as twins which is really weird yeah (laughs) it's like why would you yeah i I mean i feel like that means something it probably does (laughs) do you think caden actually killed himself did he jump off that building and was successful um i don't know if there's proof of that actually actually happening or not yeah yeah i don't know and it's like um because sammy does sammy reenacts it in the end and then he tells him uh Caden tells tells him I didn't really jump, you know, yeah. and I don't know what that means. But I then don't either. <laughs> like the be- I mean, if you're saying the end is be- built in the beginning, um, maybe we are watching a death dream unfold because it would explain like the lack of logic through a lot of things, and I don't know. There's just like, <laughs> like just like uh, how. How could he not have known his wife has that tattoo on her back oh, yeah. <laughs> the whole time? Everybody has tattoos. I've never seen that. <laughs> it's just like things like that don't make sense in reality, but they would make sense in a dream. Uh, and yeah, we, we mentioned the Qatar delusion um, and just like the whole play within a play and like this idea of like, I have to write an amazing work of art that sums up everything that I want to say. And perhaps even that's Charlie Kaufman's approach to writing this movie. It was like, I want something because originally it was going to be him and Spike Jones making a horror movie. And they all talked about real life, practical things like trips to the doctor Mm. or yeah. Like, you know, your pee being a weird color or things that are real that happen to the human body that are actually terrifying and they were going to make, build a horror movie off of all these different ideas. Uh, and then it's sort of just... He, uh, Spike Jones went on to do um, Where the Wild Things Are instead, and this sort of just became his own project, and he wanted to do this uh, on his own anyway, and it became what it's become, and it's so many different things. And anybody watching this can have a completely different read or interpretation on it. It's uh, very meta-referential. Referential, um, is, And certainly there's the the transition of him becoming Ellen by the end. Oh, that's yeah. a little Didn't even mention puzzling. <laughs> I mean, in a good way, like I'm kind of yeah. like, huh, that's interesting. Why? And why would somebody mistake him for being a woman? And, you know, Michelle Williams at one point says to, are you, you smell like you're menstruating and like just little hints and things like that. Or the nine one one operator saying, ma'am, yeah he's yelling out they say ellen too or uh adele says ellen yeah yeah so i wonder what all that ends up being and maybe that's why people are frustrated sometimes with this movie because it it wasn't universally beloved outside of people like ebert who got it and just loved it and called it the best film of the decade which you know of course i wish i could have had a conversation with him about this movie because uh it became like a significant work of art in my lifetime and it still is. And every time I watch it, I sort of break down crying tears of joy because <laughs> I'm like, I'm so glad this exists in the world. Uh, you know, again, great score by John Bryan uh, that, you know, by the end, especially the last 
once he starts walking through mm-hmm. the, the uh, it seems like the end of the world basically has happened and he's just left there by himself. And then I don't know. I find, I find all of this movie to be incredibly hilarious and moving and terrifying. <laughs> like, I mean, it does, it, it makes me a little anxious once he starts cleaning. Like, like it almost seems like he's having a panic attack, but he's dealing with it by cleaning. And I think uh, I, that's happened to me <laughs> a couple of times where it's just like, I can't handle what's going on in life. I need a distraction. I need to be doing something right now. Uh, so yeah. And what, like what's going on on the TV? Like he's seeing his future death mm. while he's set. Su- and then suddenly he decides to start compulsively cleaning. And on the TV, they're saying things like your bride has left you. <laughs> and like, it's funny, but it's also just, sad and dark i think that's what's so crazy about this movie is the tonal balance which some people may not feel that it does successfully but i think it does beautifully and consistently throughout um some people did call this one of the worst films ever made which is just hilarious to me um because it's to me one of the greatest movies ever made so i don't understand necessarily how it, somebody could be dismissive entirely of this whole experience and watching it now also in light of losing one of our all time great actors, Philip Seymour Hoffman adds a whole other layer, you know, watching him slowly disintegrate and die. But, um, yeah, I mean the whole cast is great. This is one of my favorite ensembles clearly <laughs> that's ever been in a movie. Everybody from, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, to uh, Tom Noonan, who Kaufman wanted to work with because of what happened was. What mm-hmm. happened was was one of Charlie Kaufman's favorite movies. So it just fe- it felt like all the pieces were in place to create what remains, I think, his masterpiece. Like everything about this movie feels heartbreaking and sad and hilarious. Like there are things that are extremely funny throughout this movie and people mishearing things and um, him having a sense of disconnect from even the people that he's supposed to be closest to. But I don't know. It's a, it's a sur- surrealistic conceit that I can certainly see just, you know, summarizing as a death dream. And I feel that way watching it sometimes. I think it's, it's, it's like somebody's life flashing before their eyes in different ways, I guess. Uh, and his instinct is to try and capture what's happening in his mind through the, through by making a play. Uh, and then of course what happens, it becomes a play within a play, within a play, within a play, within a play, within a play. (laughs) Uh, I just don't know. I mean, it's one of those movies where I'm like, everybody just watch it because you're going to have a completely different take than maybe another person would. So I hope you do watch it. I hope you do love it. Uh, and if you don't tell me why I'd be curious. (laughs) because i just have a completely different response and reaction to nearly everything in this movie and i do find probably the most emotionally satisfying relationship in all of charlie kaufman's movies for me is uh caden and hazel because like they try to be close and he he can't because he's crying and (laughs) having trouble in bed uh you know things like that really you know strike a chord and also her death scene 
like makes me really like oh, yeah. really emotional. I have a title. The Obscure Moon. Fighting an obscure world. Because it's clear that they they wanted to be together, but they they couldn't for whatever reason. Um, maybe it's because he was lost in his own head. You know, maybe he was just too self consumed to actually experience true love, and mm. that makes that makes it sad that they weren't able to be together except in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um it's a movie that I, I can get why people wouldn't like it. Um, it's a lot. You know, it's a lot to handle and take in, and it is very depressing sometimes. And the humor is not really... The humor is dark humor, or it's surreal humor. It's the, which A lot of it is uh, took me a long time to get, or it's like wordplay or stuff like that. It's not really like, you know, broad <laughs> humor. Uh, but I mean more the more I've seen it I will say the more funny the more I get the little the surrealism the little details he's kind of playing around with the more kind of I pick up on uh, about his life you know that I know is coming and um, I also think when you get older it's different like the older you get yeah. I've heard other people say that too like I had a friend of mine who was watching it and, you know, now he has kids and he's a little older and he's like, whoa, that breakfast table scene is like how I feel like every day. You know, I, it seems like, That's <laughs> you a know, a month st- passed. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we get older, time seems to go yeah. faster. <laughs> but that's interesting, too. They say it was a horror movie. Because I, I think that's exactly what it is. It's like kind of a horror movie about, yeah, all these death and dying things you think about when you're adult and the way your body's failing you and everything like that. Yeah. The body fails so much. <laughs> I mean, you can sort of dismiss it and say, like, he's a hypochondriac, but I don't know. There's things like, you know, there is, he is actually peeing blood at one point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, you know, and that's a scary image. There's, there's, and even just like him having a seizure. Uh, I mean, there's like the, the, the hospital stuff it, and doctor yeah. stuff is scary. It's almost a horror movie about aging, I would say, because yeah. that's all the stuff you deal with as you're aging, like more and more weird health issues, your parents dying, you know, your um, maybe if your parent, you're dealing with you're dealing with that or a divorce, maybe or um, it's just like all those scary things you deal with or even, um, you know, feeling regret or figuring like thinking you have to do something really big with your life before you die, which I think is a big part of it. He even says that. And I think everyone doesn't even have like, I don't have much time left. I have to do this really big thing, you know, before I die. It doesn't even happen though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the disappointment of not being able to fulfill that, but also maybe living your life is just enough. I don't know. I mean, it depends on the person. I guess I could say like, Oh yeah, I put a podcast together. I made some music. I did all this stuff. So I feel like, you know, my life has been relatively creatively fulfilled in a way that I, I'm grateful for, but did I create a, a, a work of art like Synecdoche? <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, and I, I that's fine. In the end, I don't know if anybody else could. Um, the one question I have for you is something that I remember even early on. Uh, I mean, it might have even been Colin who asked this. Is like, why are all these hot women attracted to Caden? <laughs> Hazel, Tammy, 
uh, Claire, all of them. <laughs> just like what what would draw like? Because again, it's the, it's very similar to what we we're talking about with Joel and Eternal Sunshine. He's not very pleasant <laughs> to be yeah. around. He's kind of like always talking about death and dying and feeling sad and lonely and pathetic and it's just kind of the same same thing that I guess could people could turn people off from Charlie Kaufman as a writer is just a lot of his protagonists are really unhappy people. So do you think that it's a case of maybe all these women can help like that's <laughs> you know that same thing mm. with uh Kate Winslet almost. Well, I mean he's yeah, he's older and like I think yeah, I think there's something that people are sympathetic to i mean this is kind of in his head too so there could be some things that are or at least i feel that way some things are exaggerated but um i also think he's also more accomplished than someone like joel like i think he's an award-winning right the theater yeah. director and obviously claire is very attracted to him as a you know being like a star of the theater world and maybe even possibly helping her you know further um, her career yes yeah so i think that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah because i don't genuinely believe that they're in love (laughs) (laughs) just sort of spontaneously happens like that is just so funny when she's like i think everybody knows we fucked we had a daughter and then all of a sudden (laughs) the daughter is there and she's like five years old again like time in this movie it moves in a very illogical manner where it's just kind of like how did this happen so quickly and you know if you see at one point a guy is like ranting and raving in the street wearing a shirt that says it's the year 2025 (laughs) or whatever or something and i'm just like what yeah, I did pause that part because um, they say at one point, I think it starts, the movie starts in 2005. They show the date everywhere. Yeah, yeah But I think then you're right. um, they say he's been at that warehouse, whatever point that 17 is, for years. 17 years. So it's like, oh, it must be getting like around the time, you know, this time or slightly later. <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. Makes me worry about this next year. Yeah, which I just never thought about that part of it before. Like, what time the ending was actually set in? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I always think, like, if I die at 745, I'm going to be a little freaked <laughs> out. That would I be weird. I just had to mention that because I feel like there's something there. I'm not going to mention the really, there's lots of, you, like I say, you go online and see some there's really so far much stuff. out yeah. details and analysis. But I feel like there must be something to the 745 thing because mm-hmm. it's just so prominent i mean and again you wouldn't know that the first time you watched it i mean why would you remember the time that comes up on the alarm clock you know what i mean no one yeah <laughs> but pay close attention <laughs> even the title of the movie shows up yeah. around that time it says seven forty-five, and it's just weird within this past year too to see things like uh you know what nathan fielder has done with the rehearsal and Bo is afraid like there are things that are clearly influenced by Charlie Kaufman that are coming out now more than ever. And I'm sure A24 will probably put out movies that are influenced by Charlie Kaufman's work. But in particularly, I just think like something like Synecdoche uh, is now heralded more, is now appreciated greatly, especially by um, other writers as being a significant um, work of art that they've responded to and feel like they want to, almost make their own version of in a way because i don't know i don't know how i cannot watch something like bo is afraid and not think of 
Charlie Kaufman because there's just like so much going on in that movie uh, to, to, to an exhausting degree <laughs> in a way <laughs> for me uh, with that movie. I think you liked it more than I did, but yeah, I just um, I love the first hour of Bo's Afraid. <laughs> that's the first that's the part that makes me think of Synecdoche the most. Uh, just the anxiety of living and going through day to day and having strange things happen left and right. But I could see that. I, I think Synecdoche, New York is a lot more subtle than that movie. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. I could see like the surreal, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like that one is way more out there. It's kind of, yeah, in terms of the, yeah, the tone and graphicness and everything. <laughs> yeah. I know. But I can see the influence. I see what you're saying. So let's talk about what I consider to be a lesser work, but it's still a fascinating and interesting one, uh, which would be Anomalisa, which came out a few years later. <laughs> right? I'm out. I think it was 2015. Or oh, yeah. It took him like seven years to make another movie. That's wild. I think it's also because he has a hard time getting funding, and studios don't necessarily want to take on <laughs> like his ideas uh, because they don't think they're going to make him money. Like I know at one point he's going to do a musical of some kind called Frank or Francis. Like he really wanted to get that off the ground. It just never happened. Um, so, the, I mean, he's had, I'm sure he's got scripts lying around that probably won't get produced for one reason or another. This one did. And it was a collaboration with Duke Johnson. I want to say, <laughs> I think, let me make sure. But it sounds right. I think I'm right. I just uh, was so excited for something new to, from Charlie Kaufman to come out, even if it's a collaboration. And again, this was a, what makes this one very interesting is uh, it's based on a play <laughs> that he wrote. It's, it was a staged mm. radio play where it was very focused on the voices. And that's why at the very beginning of this podcast, I said the theater of the new ear which was a series of plays that were done, I want to say live. So you had um, David Thewlis and Jennifer Jason Lee and Tom Noonan all on a stage together performing this play. And I think the Coen brothers might have had a play. They just tried basically live radio plays like they used to do in the olden days. And this was his take on that. There was also another one that I will link to in the show notes because I want everybody to hear it. It's a hilarious play that Charlie Kaufman did featuring Hope Davis, Meryl Streep, and Peter Dinklage called Hope Leaves the Theater. Um, I'm sorry I didn't send that to you beforehand. <laughs> I just realized that. But I think it's incredible. Uh, and it's a very meta. They even talk about how Charlie Kaufman uh, wrote this play as they're in the play. <laughs> so that's great. Uh, I love that. But Anomalisa was the other one that he did. And it turned into a stop-motion animation puppet film. <laughs> and I, I, I don't necessarily think it's up there with something like Synecdoche because it is very simplified in a way. Like, it's kind of the opposite of Synecdoche in terms of it really just being about one guy in one setting dealing with one th feeling most of the time, like just sheer and other loneliness and what he's about to do and thinking back to his relationships and all that too. But I don't know. I, I watch this now and I kind of, 
it is a very reductive feeling I get when I'm watching it to think like it is just about a lonely dude who wants to get laid again, <laughs> have an affair, uh, you know, a dissatisfied guy who just basically meets somebody and decides, you know what, I want to sleep with them before I go home to my wife and kid because I'm miserable. Mm. You know, I mean, maybe there's a lot more going on to it. And I'm sure because it's Charlie Kaufman, it, there probably is. But I don't get that strong, profound, philosophical impression that I do with the majority of his other work. What do you think of Anomalisa, Sharon? Because I, I don't know if I love it. I just mostly think it's good. <laughs> um, you know, I actually like it a lot. I came around on it a bit because I do find this character creepy and I find his kind of seduction of the young woman creepy but i will say okay so i originally saw this movie at fantastic fest and i just did not get it at all i like i thought i kind of related to the wallflower character lisa and i thought like oh you know someone's making her feel special and everything like that and i think this movie is um now watching it again it's not really about her individuality but it's more about the sameness of everyone else um because that's just what it is i i I got that this time and his life is just all monotony you know every other and it's funny in the credits there's a woman who played lisa and there's him i noticed then everyone else is tom noonan (laughs) yes you can hear like every but i just thought it was funny and it's very meaningful how that's how the credits were like he doesn't even credit his wife or anything it's everyone else but like, and that just kind of sums up the movie. And uh, everyone else in his life um, is play is voiced by Tom Noonan. Um, but even something it took me, you know, a rewatch to notice is they all have like pretty much the same face too. Oh yeah. And it's like all you know, regardless of age or gender or anything. So it's just kind of funny. I think <laughs> they have like different hairstyles or clothes, maybe. But yeah, so it's just it just kind of shows everything in his life is just kind of monotonous. He's so bored. He even says like you know, everything's so boring. And well, he's um, kind of boring. Yeah, I think this movie is again. It's um, kind of about his theme of having this romantic ideal that is so unattainable that your your life is just going to be kind of depressing if that's what you're. Depending on, you know, but he's married. I would hope that he's, I don't know. Like, (laughs) I guess I don't feel sorry for him. Some movies are full of unhappy marriages. (laughs) That's true. No, you're right. But think of, I mean, this is kind of one of those things too. We go back to with Cotard syndrome. Uh, He's staying at the Fergoli. Mm-hmm. The hotel's name is Fergoli. Oh, does that mean something? <laughs> yeah, it's a delusion where you think everybody has the same face. Oh, okay. There you go. I should look that up. I should have known that was something. Okay. Yeah. Same he he voice, loves those face. things. He loves yeah. those medical terms, you know, the things that probably Oliver Sacks studied uh, that I th- find interesting. But um, I, I guess it's just a matter of not really connecting with him. Uh, as a person i mean i understand being lonely and certainly like oh i'm staying in a hotel all by myself i'm pathetic i mean i get that but it's just i i mean i i don't know i i i guess i'm leaning more towards he is kind of a creep but i mean at the very end i understand like oh he's he's never he's not a happy person i don't think he's ever going to be a happy person no matter who he finds 
even if he thinks he's going to find <laughs> happiness with Lisa. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could kind of go into a little more of a long-winded theory I have because I, I want <laughs> I want you to, and I also <laughs> mentioned my <laughs> I, men- I mentioned my theory, and yeah. it's very reductive, and it's just basically like I don't know if Lisa f- exists in this world. I think it's a fantasy that he's having, because uh, even when he goes to that toy store, <laughs> quote unquote toy store, uh, he sees. A, a Japanese animatronic doll behind the counter. He's very transfixed by it. And it's the only time in the movie where there's a fade, a very quick fade. And then it's back into his hotel room. We don't see the doll anymore uh, in, in his hotel room. He had so, turnover service. Yes. <laughs> You're right. It could be under his bed. It could be in the bathroom <laughs> hidden away. It could be in a closet. I don't know, but it's, I don't want to say Lisa is the doll. <laughs> and then he just basically, you know, had this sex fantasy with this sex toy. Uh, <laughs> that's that seems to me again reductive and just being like, if that's what this movie ultimately is, and I don't think even Charlie Kaufman would ever say that's what it is because he's not that type of person. He's the type of person who goes, I want you to figure it out for yourself and mm. whatever your interpretation is. So it could be that, <laughs> or it could simply be that she represents. The doll represents Lisa, which is where your take is, right? Yeah. Okay. I've got to take because <laughs> please told me that we're, we're analyzing. I did rewatch and I was like, "Huh," but I think you're on to something. Um, I will just say this is I. This is not a likable character. I mean, he seems to have really traumatized this ex and his. Yeah, his that's life. what made me hate him more this time. And it starts out with that and his memories of that, and then he's thinking about you know. Um, he he just doesn't connect with anything, and I mean, again, I noticed watching again this uh, in the beginning of this movie, while this uh, you know businessman, he's a customer service representative, is you know heading to the hotel and everything. He nobody can understand what he's saying. It's another, mm-hmm. which is something again. I feel like it happens, happens in, in all every his movies. Movie. But the taxi cab driver is like, "What? I can't hear you. I can't hear you." And the, the um, bellboy. So it's like to me, it's just one another one of those instances where it's kind of like this middle aged, you know, man who's kind of like walking like a ghost, you know, through his own life. And I feel like this is kind of a theme with his characters too, like like with Caden. They feel like, I mean, you can almost feel sorry for them because they're not connected to anything in their own in their own life, even. But it's almost like they caused a lot of it, you know. Mm. And that's something I meant to say about Caden earlier. I mean, how much of it? You kind of wonder how much of it was his own neuroses, you know, and his. And I think yeah. you touched on that and narcissism. And everything caused these problems in his life. And he even says, you know, I have psychological problems and see him taking Zoloft. But anyway. Uh-huh, uh, there you go. <laughs> now I'm going to go into my, into my theory here um, that was based off of your doll theory. Okay, so after it's after his encounter with his ex that um, he goes. I'm trying. Oh, Michael Stone. That's mm-hmm. he goes into the sex toy store and gets this antique Japanese doll, which is obviously a really weird thing to have there. You know, and brings it back to his hotel. So it's after that, and then um, you know, Lisa. Um, then he has this whole encounter with Lisa, who is the only person. 
you know, he's met who has a different voice and a different face. She, she also has a scar on her face, very much like the doll. She has a face in the same place that the weird antique Japanese doll does. And at one point, it looks like he has kind of like a gear in his face that kind of looks like one of the doll. So it does seem like there's a connection there. Um, but I'm trying to remember what the connection I made was. I, so she, you know, she left... And in the morning, um, like I said, I feel like this is all about his kind of ideal, like putting people on a pedestal love. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts to notice, of course, some of the little flaws in her after one <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah. Things like she eats with her mouth open, you know, Eating she's habits. not my ideal love, <laughs> ideal love, I, you know, anymore. And her her face starts to change and her voice starts to change into the Tom Noonan voice that everyone else has. So then he goes and does his uh, presentation, which kind of bombs, and she's sitting in the audience. She has the full, the clothes that Lisa was wearing, but the Tom Noonan face. So then he goes home, and he has the doll, which he gives to his son, and, um, you know, she starts singing. Uh, and it's Lisa's voice. And it's Lisa's voice. Singing Yes. It. And it, again, it's the only different voice, the only different face. She's singing this song. Lisa did mention Japanese. But here's what I think ties all together that I never noticed. In the last scene, Mm -hmm. she's writing a letter to him like, oh, I understand why it didn't work out, Lisa. Her face is the Lisa face again. And she says in Japanese, English, the name means like goddess of heaven. And then it kind of like zooms over to friend Emily's face and it's like a... Nor, I don't she has a normal. She's like face. a feminine, yeah, she like a distinct. Face. She has yeah. a distinct feminine face. So I think that whole scene is a, is about how he perceives the world. You know, like you know that she wasn't. She didn't mm. look like that. You know, she he saw her Emily yeah. as the as another just puppet like everyone else. And I feel like that's the first time you see her that's outside of his view. Oh. And so. That, to me, indicates that he, you know, that's the way he saw the world was Lisa was like this goddess, you mm-hmm. know, this goddess mm-hmm. of heaven. And it was this idealistic, you know, goddess. And like, she only the only thing that could kind of have that would be like a doll, you know, like uh, something oh. that wouldn't be real. Oh. Uh, so that was the okay. way. I thought about it watching it again because he did. It mention, is deeper than there that. There is then. a tie. It's like she does because she does mention Japanese English dictionary. Uh-huh. I thought if anything, it was a symbol. It's a symbol of how what he saw or wanted could never be real. And then yeah. there's a song in the end that like perfectly summarizes that. And I don't remember all of the lyrics. Is it the but closing like credit friend, song? Yeah, the closing credit yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. Like my friends say, you don't exist, but when I meet you, ah. I, won't, I won't be dead anymore. <laughs> or something Aww. like that. <laughs> when I see a face or hear a name or am introduced to someone new it doesn't matter, they're all the same And none of them is you When I go to work or take a walk
has that. It's almost like Joel and Eternal Sunshine. You know, like he expects someone to like. He has this really idealistic notion of love, that you're going to meet someone, they're going to save your life and make everything less boring and monotonous. Mm. And I mean, this is a notion that when you're young, it's it's very romantic, right? But when you're getting to the age that Michael Stone is, it just kind of like leads to depression and substance use and <laughs> drinking. <Yeah. laughs> it yeah. doesn't age well. But you could say it's romantic. I way, think it's it's better to think of it that way than just like he <laughs> fucked a sex doll and that's the movie. I think it's more interesting. <laughs> but I have to admit, I feel silly because I didn't notice the first time that thing with Emily's face, or even the second time. I don't think I was like. Well, yeah, I yeah, but she's all. I mean, I never think of Emily as being a major character, but she is in that final reveal. Yeah, I was in a like, way. that must mean something that they, they yeah, focus that on they it. show that face and focus, and it's different. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it does mean that something. You're in his head, it's his perception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that last that closing song is so beautiful because I feel like that's oh yeah, all and her about. singing "Girls yeah. Just Want to Have Fun" is really really beautiful too. I really like I really liked. I mean, yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee is a you know American treasure <laughs> as far as I'm concerned because everything she's in is you know incredible and one of my favorite actresses ever. So it was great to see her. I think this was the same year as Hateful Eight, if I'm not mistaken. Like it almost felt like Jennifer Jason Lee is going to win awards and she's back and she's going to be in everything. Uh, and she's most recently in the latest season of Fargo, which your dad loves. Uh, <laughs> and it's really great. I, I, this new season of Fargo is one of the best ones yet. Oh yeah, uh, I do like her. And she's and yeah, and she's great in it. So I I I yeah I, I not to be dismissive, but I think it's more of like. I get so much out of his other two movies, Synecdoche and the next one, that this one feels more slight. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel that kind of overwhelming emotion. I even think the dream sequence in this is... Eh? <laughs> like, I don't feel like it's amazing. And I don't know if it's just because they're puppets. I don't know if like that automatically reduces this movie because you can't be as playful with the background or... You know, I don't know. He he just kind of it just feels like um, not something that he put a hundred like all of his talent into. It's more just like like an experiment, like something that he wanted to try and do something a little bit more simplified. It's almost like his what happened was in a way where it's just like two people in a room, as opposed to like trying to do the entire world and a whole life in a big theater with tons and tons of characters like a big ensemble piece like his last movie it's almost like what if i can do something with limitations and something less ambitious maybe you just need yeah maybe you just need to do something a little simpler after that (laughs) yeah and he had trouble getting other things made so maybe that's why this one i don't know it it, and it's not and again i'm not dismissing it as like not good I, i do think it's actually very very good but his next one Again, first time I saw it, I remember I watched it. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things as our last film <laughs> that we're talking about. I saw this, and again, I was very unhappy with the ending. It was very similar to Adaptation, where it was kind of like, so you're basically saying Jesse Buckley doesn't exist? I'm not happy about that. <laughs> like, she's just existing in this guy's head, and she's gone after you know for the last 
15, 20 minutes or so once they she meets the janitor. Uh, and my initial response is like dissatisfaction with that choice. And then oddly enough, I walked across the street and Jesse Buckley was there filming Fargo season four in my neighborhood. I've told people about that <laughs> and how exciting it was to basically have just watched her in this, give this incredible performance in this movie. And then there she is filming uh, during COVID. This is when we were doing the lockdown thing, I think, or it was at least later in the year. But anyway, I, uh, I have since come around and think that I'm thinking of ending things as an amazing film. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. I think of ending things. Hello? We're here. Oh, hi. Oh, it's all wet. <laughs> Here they come. Jeff has told us so much about you. He's told me so much about both of you, too. And you came anyway? <laughs> Jake tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Ooh, physics. Really? <laughs> but there's just something profoundly wrong here. Are you okay? Yeah. I think you're ending something. I am so glad Jake has found someone. <laughs> Like it, it does have very funny things in it, but once again, but I also, uh, as I'm getting older and, you know, certainly seeing my mom aging, uh, this one, this one's going to be hard to go back to in the same way I do with Synecdoche, which is funny to say. I see it. I watch Synecdoche at least once a year, whereas this one, I, it's so hard. It's really difficult for me to watch this movie, uh, because it's basically watching somebody slowly die and their mind is almost like in a perpetual state of dementia going back from fantasy to reality. Uh, and it's very uncomfortable knowing that this janitor character is essentially giving up on life and saying, I'm never going to find love. What's the point? I'm just going to go freeze and die <laughs> in my truck. That's kind of what the ending of this movie is. And for a long time, I actually thought the ending of the movie, we hear a car starting or a car engine starting or something and maybe that's what i was thinking like oh maybe he's gonna go get some help but no he's dead i'm convinced that he's completely 100 percent dead at the end of that movie and what we're hearing in the background during the closing credits is just a uh, a uh, snow plow plowing the school uh parking lot that's what we're hearing uh i i do love this movie now very much but it's so difficult to uh watch despite seeing two of our best actors working today together in a car. It's so talky. Like people talked about how insanely talky this movie was, but I love everything. I love their interactions. I love their dialogue. Uh, and there's a lot to say about each component of this film, particularly once they get to the house. And again, there's a lot of hidden things and Easter eggs and <laughs> surprises to be found and connections and everything. But um, good Lord. I'm thinking of ending things. We watched this together. Remember? <laughs> That's right. And uh, what were your initial thoughts and how do you feel about it today? Yeah, I mean, I feel kind of slow because I didn't get the first time. Well, you know, there's kind of play on words with the I'm thinking of ending things. And I was thinking of it more in terms of a relationship. And I guess you could read it 
you know, it's I, I, I feel like it's about both of those things, even if the relationship, you know, only existed in his mind. It's about, you know, kind of like ending a relationship and ending a life. And um, of course, now I get that more that I know what happens. I don't know what I thought the scenes with the old man were when I <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was honestly someone reflecting back on his life, maybe, which I guess it kind of is. So. Um, and then I read all of that stuff, like in the end, the play where someone comes out and I, I, I just read it all as it slaying the relationship, you know, and that was over. I didn't get the whole, the death thing the first time at all. Mm. Um, until you explained it to me. <laughs> and now when I watched it. But you also read the I book mean, too. I mean, at the very end, I think I did. This is yeah, the first movie, the book, by the yeah. way, that's based on a book that it's not like Charlie Kaufman original screenplay. But yeah, and again, it's things, when you watch it again, it's this weirder, just like Synecdoche, New York, it's kind of subtle. Um, oh, correction, sorry. I just got to correct myself. The Orchid what? Thief. Orchid Thief was an adaptation. What am I talking about? Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that to me just feels original. It's an adaptation <laughs> of an adaptation. Yeah. But this is like, yeah, this is him adapting the book. More straightforward. More straight forward yeah. adaptation. Yeah. But, uh, oof. Yeah. Hard, to, hard to. Ugh. Once you, I think it's because like if you rewatch this, knowing what it is, it is kind of hard to watch at times because he's basically wrestling with himself and yeah. hating himself and sort of like angry that he never actually had a fulfilling life with a partner, and he's sort of inventing another idealized version of a partner that like, he would love i feel like that's that kind of comes up in every one of his movies doesn't it yeah um, i hope he's happily married i would think so <laughs> there's a great i mean he seems like such a nice guy for all these yeah. lo- lonely self-loathing <laughs> characters. <laughs> he does <laughs> i feel like that one line i can't remember if i said this earlier adele says in synecdoche new york like everyone's disappointing once you get to know them romantic love is just a production like that's an yeah. idea he, he uses a lot but like yeah uh i i think this one and i think this is another thing i said to you is i i find this to be probably his most depressing movie um i do now and i think it's even more depressing than synecdoche just for that reason you mentioned um that i feel like his character never had a life at all he no. never even he wasn't like Joel who had a you know maybe a failed relationship with Clementine. He wasn't like Caden Catard who he his life he made choices, he did things even if he made big mistakes, you know, he was just had nothing, nothing. And I feel like this whole thing is just sad because it's like a, such an elaborately constructed fantasy that's just bright it could tip over at any moment. And I feel like you see that a lot actually um i mean especially in the dinner conversation with the parents where he's like and that's the thing anyway you try so hard to you know please your parents yeah that's you know? for sure but then when he's telling the story of how they met and they kind of question it a little bit and there's that part where jesse buckley says well um you know i thought i thought he was showing off i didn't like that or i forget something like that and the mother just looks like so sad she's like you didn't like him anymore <laughs> and there's this real awkward pause like it's like where she's trying to think of what the to dinner say. where nobody eats anything <laughs> right. if you notice 
And it's like, I feel like that's one of many moments where it's like, no, 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 you, they had to work out. <laughs> yeah. You want this to be real. You want them yeah. to actually, but I think the janitor is just full of self-loathing. Yeah. And. Or fear. Yeah. Probably both fear and self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's just, it's it, yeah. And, there, and there's just little hints like the, there's this, the, the shy, awkward student that walks in the hallway that actually kind of gives him like a little bit of a smile of like, oh yeah, I understand what it's like mm. to be different uh, or, or, or disconnected. And she shows up at the uh, Tulsi, Tulsi town, town yeah. as being the one person that is trying to reach out in a way uh, and say, you don't have to kill yourself. Basically, that's what she's trying to say. Uh, while the other two girls are the ones that were mocking him uh, in the high school, they're the other two Tulsi girls, and they're just standing there laughing, and mm. you know, just not acknowledging him at all. Uh, and and just yeah, both of them together, even just sitting in a car, her reciting poems, her turning into Pauline Kale. I mean, uh, Jenna Rollins from A Woman Under the Influence. At one point, it's just like, how can you not? be amazed by what Jesse Buckley does in this movie. Like, because she's has no clear identity, her name changes, her profession changes. Uh, she has to like almost adapt to the fantasy yeah, in his yeah. head uh, and does it so brilliantly. And Jesse Plemons, man, want to talk about a guy. And it's funny. People like actually thought, you know, Jesse Plemons reminds me of Philip Seymour Hoffman a little bit. People said that, and I was like, huh, interesting. I, I could see that. I could yeah. see a connection there. But again, another sad, lonely protagonist here that we're kind of expected to sympathize with. And I guess now I do, in a way, where it's just, oh, poor, sad, lonely old man who just basically didn't have a fulfilling life, and he's given up. He's basically decided I, there's no reason to keep going. And decides to end it. And I, I mean, part of me wonders if he has dementia that's causing him to have these delusions. Oh, or, that's definitely a, something that happened, you know. Because it happened to his parents. Or, to his parents. Yeah, especially yeah. his dad. Yeah. Which are like projections also, right? Mm-hmm. Or they could have really happened. Or just like they're his memory again mm-hmm. of what happened when they both uh, were aging uh, yeah, and and if you look closely, and it requires pausing, everybody. Uh-oh. But if you look, <laughs> if you look at uh, all the things that he's got piled up in his room, oh yeah, you'll see um, a copy of certain books. You'll see a DVD for A Beautiful Mind, which is quoted at the very end of the movie. It's like a reenactment, and Oklahoma is reenacted, obviously, towards the end as well. Uh, and there's even like journals. That say disappointments. I was going to say the thing I liked, I paused it too, is he had a few video, like VHS that were labeled future efforts at success, unforgettable mishaps, lasting memories of sorrow, and abandoned friendship. So we're inside his head, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I, I mean, and you can see all the, I mean, those I thought were the saddest, obviously. But I mean, well, other things are too, but he, you can basically see in that room, like, all the things he kind of used to construct this fake, or a lot of the things, you know, he used to construct this fake yeah. life, you know. And the himself. basement has yeah. all the paintings. Yeah. 
And I like how... So I feel like he's kind of constructing this house as they're, you know, walking through it. Yes. Um, you know, and adding things, even like the dog. He's like, oh, do you like dogs? There's a dog. Yep. I love <laughs> oh, that. Oh, it's smelly. And then it disappears. <laughs> and I like how he It said, takes forever for the parents to show up. Yeah. Like he's hesitant to relive I, that yes. experience. Or I feel like he's almost deciding. I feel like everything's a protection. He's got deciding what they're going to be like or what form they're going to take or whatever. And the um, basement. I love how he says the basement is unfinished. Because it seems almost mm. like a play on words. Like he's, <laughs> I don't know if that's what it was, but yeah, he wasn't finished like forming what would be down there yet. But he definitely hmm. didn't want her to go down there. And realize um, that she, he's a, a janitor because the uh, his the uniforms in the washer. There, yeah, in the wash. So little things throughout, hidden throughout this movie. Uh, oh, and it's so weird like i know i mean yeah again there's so many details you can connect like i noticed when they first got into the house he had that water bottle they put in a drawer and there's in the very first scene well you can also see it throughout you can see that in the janitor's house and he also has dog toys on the floor oh which i only hmm. noticed after i didn't notice that a few times. interesting <laughs> yeah huh. well so, this the wallpaper yeah, a lot the wallpaper of in his house i yeah. mean that's his house right like the I assumed so, yeah. And the the swing set, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's like Synecdoche, New York. Once you know what's coming, you can connect more details of the yeah. janitor's house and life and everything. And what he's saying on the phone is what he's saying at the window about fear and assumptions. And yeah. So. Yeah. And also really great performances from the parents. I mean, we sort of come to expect Tony Collette being incredible in just about everything. Uh, David Thewlis, especially here, too, when he's basically, you know, completely deteriorating his mind. Like, I mean, just in that room with her, it's really heartbreaking. Um, and, of course, seeing her on her deathbed. I mean, that all that stuff is like, I, ugh, this is such a hard movie in, in, in a way that, like, why does Synecdoche work as more of an entertainment that's kind of like darkly humorous most of this is kind of bleak yeah like to, right down to the ending you know so i mean i get why people wouldn't necessarily uh, appreciate this movie uh and sort of like go oh that's too much for me or there's too much talking that's just them in the car like people were very dismissive too which is kind of sad because I, I feel like the more people are dismissive of his work, the less chance we're going to get from for more Charlie Kaufman work. So I, I, I hope people will embrace whatever comes next from him. Uh, yeah. And I also love the them uh, getting it because we've gotten into these arguments too about uh, <laughs> lyrics uh, like uh, Baby It's Cold Outside when, they an- oh, right. when they're analyzing art. <laughs> It's 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 kind of funny because it made me think of when we uh, disagreed uh, and had different interpretations of Power of the Dog. Like we, oh, cu- right. couples really go through like have these moments where they have completely <laughs> different perspectives on something, uh, and I I think that's very real. Like some of the things they're talking about. Yeah. No. They. Uh, yeah. A lot of their arguments they were very like this modeled well after. You know, what two young academic (laughs) (laughs) who are slightly competitive sometimes, you know, what they would, what their talk would be like. I thought it was really well done. Oh, yeah. 
I will. I do one other thing I want to point out is I thought it was kind of funny though the very last time I was watching it. Like it, I noticed something every time. But they were in the when they were doing the tour of the farm, and he was telling the story of the pigs. You know, right before that, he was saying how the lambs were frozen and not to worry about them. The little subtitle I wouldn't know this except for the subtitle said lambs bleeding. <gasps> <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> they believed it a few times. Like I wouldn't have known the difference between oh. the sheep and the lambs. But the, pe- but, the pig, yeah. the pig is bleeding out too. It's yeah, a, in a way, right towards the end, or is that he's just infested with maggots? Right, he's infested. He, they tell that story. He was infested with maggots, and I also love how she brings out the big ham and she says oh, everything's yeah. farm to table. <laughs> she puts the big ham in front of her after you've told oh, that story. It's like where did that ham? Uncomfortable. Where did the ham come from? <laughs> So yeah. Oh God, though, it's but that funny. you know what? That is hinting at the end of the movie when you're talking about don't worry about the frozen lamb. That makes it even sadder. Oh right, yeah. No, it definitely said in the subtitle, "lambs bleeding." You know, mm. and they were frozen. He said they were fr- dead and frozen. So that's what he ends it's up like, being. Yeah. What a happy note to. End <laughs> <laughs> I realized it tied in then. Perfect. <laughs> wow, Charlie Kaufman, you're a genius. <laughs> genius right or is it or is it genus genus right <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so good this he's so good i love charlie goff and he also has a book that eventually i'll read called <laughs> ant kind uh that's about a failed film critic trying to um piece together a long lost film that's three months long so uh eventually i'll read that it's very intimidating i mean if i've gotten through thomas pynchon i'm sure i can eventually pick this up i'm excited to read it and then uh in february coming up in about a month there's an animated movie coming up on netflix that he just wrote so we'll see what that is like uh it is called orion and the dark which is basically about a a, a young boy who is terrified of everything so it seems like right in his wheelhouse because it's about anxiety and it's strange, too, because the next uh, Pixar sequel is Inside Out 2, and the new emotion is anxiety. So maybe this will be the year of the anxiety animation uh, spectacular. We'll see if both films are good. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see like a Charlie Kaufman scripted animated film. It'll premiere on Netflix on February 2nd. We'll watch it together! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Just because we're such huge fans. So Night to Key, New York, one of the greatest films I'll ever see in my life. And I'm so glad I finally got to talk about it because I love Charlie Kaufman and so do you. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, where can people find you, Sharon, on the interwebs? Is it mostlymentalfilmist.com? Yeah, I think I mentioned all of them earlier. But if you just look under anything, it's F I L M. N-E-S-S, mental filmness. There's a dot com. There's a Facebook dot or yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> mental <laughs> filmness. What is the Facebook one? You know, it's just you put that on any oh, yeah. Twitter. What else? Twitter and Film Freeway. Those are the main ones. But Film Freeway dot mental filmness, you know, that it's the same everywhere. There's Aww. no numbers or at symbols. Or <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> to make it tricky. Yeah, you don't have to overthink this one, folks. <laughs> Unlike Charlie Kaufman's movies, which I uh, I love overthinking them, and I love talking about them with you, especially. 
even if we're not doing a podcast or in front of microphones, it's just great to talk with you about uh, what makes him so special. And, you know, he's thought-provoking, funny, sad, like all the things that I feel like we experience together <laughs> in life, in love, <laughs> and uh, through art. And you're a great artisan of yourself. I mean, oh, truly. Thanks. You know, you've had a lot of accomplishments that you should be proud of. And I'm certainly proud of the fact that uh, the first episode of 2024 is on my favorite writer with my favorite person. Oh, It's such a joy to have you. <laughs> Thank you. It's fun. It was. I'm so glad we did it. Everybody visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And stay tuned, because in just about a week, you are going to get to hear my favorite films of 2023, alongside guests Patrick Rapole and Bill Ackerman, two of my other favorite people to talk with uh, about cinema. I can't wait to hear what they think of the year of of film. Um, And this was just a great way to kick off the new year. And there will be a lot more to come in the future, so I hope you all stick around. I am no longer on Substack because uh, they apparently love Nazis and we don't need them in our lives. So uh, bye-bye, Substack. Hello, Beehive. So visit me at fiveyears.beehive.com. Beehive is spelled B-E-E-H-I-I-V. I know it's a weird spelling, and it will be in the show notes, so don't worry. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. And thank you again to my amazing partner, Sharon, for being on the show. Thank you. You have struggled into listening to this podcast, and now you're silently falling out of it. This is everyone's experience, every single one who downloaded it. The specifics hardly matter. Everyone is everyone. So you are Jim, Sharon, Patrick, Bill, Ellen. You are Charlie. All his meager sadnesses are yours. As you recognize your transience, As you begin to lose your characteristics and memory, one by one, you learn there was no one watching you and there never was. You think about listening to something else, not coming from any place in particular, perhaps from YouTube or Spotify. You're just listening to another voice somewhere else. Now you are here at 743. Now you are here at 744.